you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke? We are going to resume the Reading the Red series, the words of Jesus. And we're just going to go right through the Gospel of Luke so that we can soak up every word he said to us. And he continues to say to us through his word. Let me just go through the first 15 verses with you and then have a very, well, I don't know what it will be. We'll see. Now, after this, the Lord appointed. Now, that's a, the, the Greek word is, is more commissioned for a certain work than appointed to a role. Okay? So, right away, we get into the aspect that this is a very practical, expedient task that these 70 are going to do, or 72, whichever way you add that up. <clears throat> because... <clears throat> Our work is not to be appointed to a certain office. There are very few offices that we are appointed to permanently. Our work is work, very practical. So the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every city and every place where he himself was going to come. Now, why two by two? Well, the obvious answer is because we all need companionship. We all need a relationship. We need an accountability. And any time you begin to to really maximize your discipleship, you find the need for a partner, someone who will listen to what you have to say, and someone who will ask you what you have not don't, don't have, have the nerve to say yet. So there is the aspect of accountability in that. All right. But there is also, in the Ecclesiastes 4, you know, uh, two, for, two are better than one for they, return, they, they, they have a good return for their labor. You know, if one is down, the other will help him up. If one is cold, you know, how, but how can one keep uh, warm alone? That kind of thing. Okay, so that's necessary. There is the other aspect, though, that in Scripture, whenever you attested to a fact, you needed two witnesses. And two witnesses would affirm that this is a fact. That's why in uh, 1 Timothy, that if you are to bring an accusation against an elder, for example, they say, don't even try it unless you have two or more witnesses. It has to be that factual. There's an Old Testament um, um, tradition that says that when two testify, then it will be a fact, okay? Then it will, then it will have the credibility it needs. And so they, he sent them out two by two so that they would have credibility. And they would come in the pattern of the Old Testament. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I will preach on that some other time. Go your ways. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Let me me talk to you about that for a minute. You know, Christ is called the good shepherd. Let me ask you on the face of it, what kind of a shepherd sends his lambs out into the midst of wolves? Isn't it a shepherd's job to protect his lambs from the wolves? Indeed, in every living religion of mankind, if you ever study comparative religions, you will see that the genesis or the beginning of those religions came from an inner fear that people could not cope 
with outer elements. And so they began to enjoin or entreat the gods to protect them. But that's not what it says in the book, is it? What it says in the book is, I'm going to send you out as lamb, as lambs in the midst of wolves. What does that mean? What kind of shepherd is that? A shepherd who doesn't care? Now we know he cares because he's laid his life down for us. What he wants you to pick up here is that he is, in shepherd, he is a shepherd that empowers the sheep. Now that's different. That's different from other shepherds. Other shepherds simply protect. But when the sheep can go out and, pro and convert the wolves, <laughs> live in the midst of the wolves, that's an enabling shepherd. That's the kind of shepherd we have. And so he says, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, carry no purse, no bag, and no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Now, he is saying, I'm not going to give you any, any sustenance. I want you to depend on me. I don't want you to start off with any sustenance. Why? Because I want you to be different. Everyone else, when they go out, they have a worldly stash, you know. If people fall on hard times, then they can go back to their worldly stash. And believe me, I'm not against worldly stash. I think, I think you need to be able to have a savings account in order to provide for your children or in order not to be, become a burden on your children and all that kind of stuff. But don't miss the point here. The point is that we depend upon Christ and not upon what we have stored up. Well, if Christ doesn't come through, then I've always got this. We depend on Him so radically that if He doesn't come through, we're, hurt, we're hurting in certain ways. Okay? And He says, don't speak to anybody on the way. What is that? That, that calls more attention to them. See, in the Orient... The custom was that you greeted other people, and it wasn't just a high. You know, we have completely lost this in America. We can go down a busy street and never speak to anybody. As a matter of fact, people we think we're weird if we do speak to anybody. We hardly even tell anybody Merry Christmas anymore. But in the Orient, where they lived, a greeting was not only a custom, it was long and involved and sometimes very complicated. You would greet a person and you would stand there and greet them for minutes and minutes and sometimes hours on end. And what Jesus is saying here is, you've got a work to do. And I don't want you to get rabbit trailed off of it. I want you to go out and do the work I've just commissioned you for. So avoid that and people will begin to look at you and say, these people don't have supplies. They didn't even say, hi, what are they up to? See, a prophet, prophets drew attention to themselves so that they could draw attention to the Lord. That was the Old Testament way. Prophets had ways to dramatically demonstrate their truth. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm sending you out as truth givers. And I want you to dramatically demonstrate the truth I have for you to take. And then it says, verse 5, And whatever house you enter... First say, now watch this, I want you to see this. Peace be to this house. A disciple who is commissioned by Jesus Christ has power in their words. Now it was a custom 
to give a house a greeting when you went to it, to give, a, to give the host a greeting. That was the custom. I mean, we wouldn't now, even today, have somebody open the door and just trounce right through, would we? We'd say, hi, I'm here. You know, some sort of greeting. That's not this. What he is saying, there is something in Greek that is very easily missed here. What he is saying is that there is a power for you to give a gift. This is not a greeting. This is a gift to that household. If you say peace and they accept that peace, peace will come. That's a gift that they can accept or reject. Now, two things I want you to see here. First of all, there is power in what you say. You know, some people talk for such a long time about so many things. They don't really believe that they have it. They, they believe that they're communicating sometimes. But what they say doesn't really matter. How many times have you had in your life the thought, well, what I say doesn't really matter? When you're commissioned by Jesus Christ, what you say has creative power. Remember at the very beginning, the Lord said, let there be light. What happened? There was light. Right? When you're commissioned by Jesus Christ, what you say actually has power. And so he came and gave them a gift. He wanted them to know that they had the power. He also wanted them to know that they had the responsibility. You have the responsibility to bless people. In the name of Christ, you have that responsibility. Don't just slip around people. They need your blessing. And whether or not they accept your blessing is a totally, it's, it's totally irrelevant to you. Not totally irrelevant. I always tend to exaggerate. But it's not relevant to whether or not you give it, you see. So, it says, And if a man of peace, that is, a man who is predisposed to accepting your gift. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him, but if not, it will return to you. Now they're going, notice you, they're going to the houses where disciples don't live. These are not God-fearing, Jesus Christ-knowing people. So therefore, because a disciple would automatically accept the peace. Therefore, what I want you to see here is the blessing the power does not dissipate. This has the same laws of conservation of energy as this physics do. You, you don't dis, it doesn't dissipate. It just changes form. It comes back to you. It's not wasted. If somebody doesn't... You know, in the world, if somebody refuses you, what do you feel like? You feel drained, don't you? You feel like, boy, that wasn't any good. I have less power than when I started. And if you knock on several doors and get rejected at each door, you feel less powerful and less powerful and less powerful and less powerful because you feel like what has been done has dissipated your message. That's not true spiritually. When you are refused spiritually, when a blessing or a peace you have given to someone is refused, you have just as much power as before you said it because it comes back to you. And that's another way of saying, try it again. Try it again. Try it again. You will never run empty. See? He will not let you fall. Let's look again. 
And stay in that house, he says, eating and drinking what they give to you. Now, we've already established these are non-believers. Most of these people who are going out so far are Jewish believers because he went first to the house of Israel. So they're going to go into households and they're going to have set before them foods that are against their religion, right? I mean, they could have food set before them that have been worshipped, that, that have been offered to idols. 1 Corinthians 10, 27. They could have um, food that, um, well, no, wait a minute, First, that doesn't apply. That, this, is, this is the next part of the verse. But they can have foods that, you know, I mean, you could go in and you're, you know, you're former Jewish. Now you are a full Jew because you believe in Jesus Christ. You're a Messianic Jew. And you go in there, first thing they do is say, how about a ham sandwich? What are you going to say to them? Oh, I'm sorry, it's against my, it is? Well, I've been eating ham for years. I could never never fit into your religion. No. You say, thanks. Got some mayonnaise? Look, reason he does that is because any time before people receive Jesus Christ, it is absolutely easy and convenient to get off on irrelevant details, isn't it? And let me tell you this, it's just as easy after they do. And what Jesus is saying here is that you do not have to convert them to the way of Christianity before you offer me. And you don't have to be bound to details that are not ultimate. What if you go into a non-believer's household, you have made a vow to God that you're going to lose weight. Or, you, know, you know, I'm not going to use sweets. This whole year I promised God. And they set before you, this is a, Apple pie a la mode. Now we're talking, aren't we? Now, we're, now, we, now we left the realm of theory and came to real practice here. Apple pie a la mode. And you know you've made a vow to God. And the first thing you're going to think is, now when these people get to know me better, or maybe they'll see me in a different setting and I'm not eating sweets and they're going to inquire about it and they're going to say, didn't you make a vow to God? They're going to find out I made a vow to God, but I made, you know, I didn't. Eat the thing. Eat it. Enjoy it. Because they made it for you to eat and enjoy. And who are you getting close to? I mean, is your ultimate standard your scales? Is, it, is your ultimate standard what you've promised God before you came into a certain situation? Or is your ultimate standard who you can love in the name of Christ and who you can show joy and love to? Do you know how many people are turned off by Christians because they are in such bondage to such little things? Little things. Do you know how many people say, I could never live like that because they see Christians who can hardly live like that? Jesus is saying, eat it. Eat what's ever set before you because the important thing is established in the relationship. It is not the food law. It's not the clothes law. It's not anything. You know, let me tell you something. I'm going to tell you anyhow. It is such a privilege to belong to a body of people who are mature enough to be free. And you are that body. 
It is such a privilege. I bought a car Friday. Now I know that as a preacher, I should have bought a black Ford Fairmont with good tires. <laughs> I know that. So I'm telling you that beforehand. I know that. And then when I drove down the street, people go, oh, there goes a minister. You know, I know that. But I've wanted a Jeep <laughs> for a long time. I wanted a black one because I didn't want to offend anybody, but, but I got these boys who, who wanted a jazzy car. So we compromised. And I got the jazziest yellow Jeep you could ever imagine. Now, the good part of that <clears throat> is that the car that I was driving was a car when, my car, when my car fell apart uh, a few years ago, somebody donated it to the church, and that got me over a hump to where I could get myself to buy a car. Now, it goes back to you, and we've got somebody who, who's using it, who needs a car right now, and when they get done, it'll be available to anybody in the church. It's going to be the church car, and when you need transportation, it's yours. Meanwhile, I got this Jeep. I knew as I was buying that thing that if I belong to First Primitive Baptist Church, Tuscawilla, Tennessee, the minute I drove in the parking lot, all of them would be out of the church going, worldly, 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 you know? <laughs> Hit lever 23 of the parking lot, and the trap door would open, and that car would go straight to hell, and I'd be next. <laughs> I know that. If I was still the senior pastor of a large mainline denominational church, <clears throat> I might have a little committee of folks come to me. <laughs> pastor, we have very many distinguished businessmen in our body, and uh, we would uh, prefer it if you would uh, always use doctor by your name and always uh, try to work in what good you've done for the community and uh, about the Jeep. Now, I had no fear when I bought that Jeep with you. You do have, though, I mean, the realistic side is you have an opportunity here that when you're walking down the street with a friend and I come whizzing by in that Jeep, singing to the top of my lungs, and your friend says, can you believe that? That guy must have been 40 years old. You've got a choice to make. You can either go, <laughs> or you can own up to me and say, that was my pastor. <laughs> and then they're going to say this, what does your church believe? And then you can say this, we don't believe that what's important is what you wear or where you live or what you eat or what you drive. Who you know, Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that's really, really important. That's what we believe. And then watch what happens. We need to be able to be free. <clears throat> Did I, I? I want you to know I made up this sermon before I bought the Jeep. This whole sermon is not to justify that Jeep. 
sir. <laughs> I'm gonna pull your lever in a minute, Willis. <laughs> or maybe you can pull mine. You got all the levers up there. Uh, Uh, okay, um, I get, okay, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. We're still in verse 7 here. Um, Galatians 6, 6. I mean, Jesus assumed that spiritual teachers would be provided for. That's never. I mean, it's one thing, the song, would Jesus wear a Rolex on his television throw? I mean, that's, show, that's one thing. But, but it is always assumed that teachers of spiritual things will be provided for in Scripture. I mean, that's never questioned by Jesus or anybody else. Do not keep moving from house to house. I'll talk about that in a minute. In whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you, the same thing, and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, here's the special thing. Do you notice that the healing is a sign of the nearness of God and not an aftermath of the nearness of God here. So there is a time when healing is not dependent on another person's faith. It is dependent on what God wants to do for them in the future, not what God has done for them in the past. So when you go to a person, don't wait till they become a Christian in order to pray for their healing. Don't wait... And, and no matter what kind of healing it is, physical, emotional, don't wait. Because God may very well want to show them himself after the healing rather than before. And say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, here's another thing. For those of you who are really into this, uh, well, I know none of you are, but this new age thing where... It just kind of gets into, well, God is everywhere and God is limitless. And, you know, anytime you want to tune into God, you can just tune into God. It's not what it says here. When it says the kingdom of God has come near to you, that implies, does it not, that there are limits and there is a way. There are limits and there is a way and the way is Jesus Christ. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say... Even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And again here, it's a dramatic demonstration. Go out in the street where everybody can see you and proclaim to them in hopes that they repent. In you know, when you, when you get uncomfortable with people, you have to realize that most conversions happen not because you're so happy, but because you're so uncomfortable. It is no sin for people to get uncomfortable because you have loved them enough to tell them the truth. That goes beyond normal courtesy. So even if it doesn't happen with you, maybe it didn't happen, but maybe there was one out of ten people in that crowd that got shocked enough when they saw them dusting off their feet, which was a testimony against them, to rethink what they were doing. Here comes the rest of that message. I say to you, it would be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for the city. Than for that city. Woe to you, and the, the, this is the Jewish oive, 
Boy, they, you've heard that term? It's a, it's a proclamation of something bad that is going to happen. Okay? Hoy they to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Basidia, for the miracles had been performed, for had, for if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented years ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth is a garment made out of goat's hair. Smells real bad. And you wear it when you are to show that you are repenting of the ways of the world. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. Now, I want to show you an important theological point here. Ignorance is a factor in judgment. The people who know are punished more than the people who don't. When Jesus said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, it was a defense argument on behalf of a client. So therefore, if you know the claims of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has demonstrated in your life His power, His appearance, His truth, and you still not do, do not follow Him, the punishment on Judgment Day escalates. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Now I want you to notice there that it is not content that we're trying to communicate. When we get sent out in mission, we are going as people. And this is the risky thing. I see Christian after Christian arguing doctrine with people. You only argue doctrine if you are close enough that your friendship, that your relationship is transcendent of that argument. And if faith is not dependent on that argument... Now, there are some things people have intellectual questions about, and it's okay to answer intellectual questions, but you don't convert people by a doctrinal argument. You convert people by going you to them so that you can show Christ in you to them so that they can know who God is because of Christ in you. It's that simple. You communicate a person. Three things real fast. First of all, Christianity always has a sequel. This mission was predated by Christ's apostolic mission, by when he sent out the disciples. And therefore, there's always a sequel in Christianity. You never, as the world thinks, get to a place where you arrive and relax. Never. There is always a sequel. Somebody once said that triumph is just oomph added to try. Jesus obviously didn't get everything done while he was here, but he was the first try, and we're the oomph. There, first there was the disciples' oomph, and then there was the 70s oomph, and now we're, we're the oomph. See? Why does God do that? He does it because, A, he wants to accomplish his purpose in the world, and he has not done that yet. If he did, we'd go up with him. 
and B, because he knows that for spiritual health, we have to be challenged. We have to be moving ahead. Christianity is like an egg. You either hatch or go bad. There's no staying the same in it. There is no staying the same. Did you know that a squirrel can run faster up a tree than he can on level ground? Christians are made the same way. We can run faster up than we can stay on level ground. There is always another challenge. There's always another mission. Second, it is important that you not question the basics God has given you. Stay in the house. Eat what's set before you. Don't keep going back. I see more Christians destroyed trying to redecide what they've already decided. Now, there are some times in life when you're going to be, you know, the things that you've decided are going to be exploded right in front of you, and then you need to go back to the basics and reorganize. But every time somebody gets tired, they tend to say, well, I wonder if I should be here. I wonder if I should even be on earth. I wonder if I married the right person. I wonder if I got the right friends. I know what's God trying to do. They just go back to the basics. Christ is saying, you can't be in mission if you keep going back to the basics. If you keep wondering, you know, what is existence all about? I had a, a woman come to me five years ago. I think it was five years. I don't know. Pretty gal. She came in and sat in my office. I said, what are, you, what are you thinking? She said, I wonder if I married the right man. And I said, well, tell me about it. So she told me this theory she had, she had developed that maybe because she was a little frustrated in her marriage, Maybe God had designed her for a certain individual and she'd blown it by an impulsive decision. And therefore, she would be half miserable all of her life because she hadn't gone ahead and married the perfect individual God had made her for. And I said, look, that's not true. When you made that decision, that's God's man for you. And there is no one else out there for you. This is it. And she said, okay, I'm going to believe that. Now, I wish I could tell you that what happened was a happy life. But she went out of that office, and three years later, she discovered her, her husband's undetected addiction to drugs. And she went through hell with him. But you know what? He got healthy, she got healthier. And they're still married. And they have a wonderful relationship. I just talked with them a week ago. A wonderful... They've got healthy kids. Do you know why that happened? Because at one point in her life, she decided she wouldn't redecide the decision she already made. That was her husband. And she was going to stick with him. No matter what the problem was. Before, the problem would have destroyed the relationship. But not now. Not now. Because she had the power of not having to redecide everything. I knew a kid once. I'm not going to, we're going to, I'm going to quit in a minute. I knew a kid once that was a fantastic athlete. His name was John Milburn. Went to West Point. Was so good. And you could tell these kids when they were coming up didn't have really good coaching. I mean, the coaches didn't teach them the fundamentals. But John somewhere learned that the power comes from a planted foot. And when he was playing foot, uh, football, he was, a, he was a quarterback, and he would plant his foot, and he could wing the ball 50 yards because he had power in his planted foot. And when he played baseball, there was one foot that was planted. 
And therefore, the other foot could move forward. See? It's the same principle in spirituality. You have to have some decisions in your life that you don't reconsider. Well, I wonder if I'm really a Christian. Forget that noise. Have you accepted Christ? Then yes, you are. Period. Don't keep going back over that. Plant that foot, because unless you get plant, that foot planted, you can't let the other one out for power. You can't reach out with the other one. That's exactly what Christ is telling us to do, is to reach out with this other one. Don't go through life with a bunch of doubts about yourself, because other people need you. They need you. They need to see somebody who has the basics settled. They need to see somebody who will pay attention to them. And if you're always paying attention to your own basics, you can never pay attention to anybody else. They need you. Let's take some time right now to pray. And I want you to pray about two things. First of all, if there's something in your life right now that you have just been worrying yourself sick about and it's just a basic in your life and you just keep going back and forth, I want you to set that... I want you to give that to God. I don't want you to worry about that anymore because you will not be able to be in ministry if you keep worrying about that. Give it to God. Quit worrying about it. Don't redecide it. If God has leadership for you, guidance on that problem, He'll show you. Otherwise, don't keep, you know, picking it open. The second thing I want you to do during this prayer time is ask God to show you someone who is not like you, who you could really love. You could just love them. You could just show the love of God to them. You don't need to argue with them into your position. You don't need to go out and convert them. You could just love them and let the love of Christ show through your life to these people. Have him show you that person and then love them. Plant it and step out. That's the power of Christ. During this time, we're going to have a couple of worship songs. For some of you, it's very helpful to come here and get on your knees before the Lord in order to give Him something or to have Him say something to you. You're free during this worship time, these few songs, to do just that. If you want to stay in your pew, that's okay too. But just go to the Lord and have Him show you what he would settle today and what he would have you step out with.